Hello, this is Jay Khadija Abdurrahman, and I'm on We Be Imagining Podcast. This is Thursday, July 16th, 2020. It's 2.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I use she, her pronouns. I'm the director of the We Be Imagining program at Columbia University's American Assembly and the Insight Center. I'm here with my co-host, Stanley Munoz. What's up, Stanley? What's up, what's up, Khadija? Uh, hey, everyone. Um, my name is Stanley Munoz. I'm a dancer and choreographer based out here in Los Angeles right now. And my pronouns are he, him, his. All right, dope. So we've spent most of the last 10 episodes talking about policing, but the focus of today's episode is on the abolition of the child welfare system. Um, and uh, this is a particular research focus of mine and something I'm very passionate about. I also encourage people to listen to our Mother's Day episode featuring families in the trenches who have both had their families personally involved in the child welfare system and are now part of the movement to abolish it. And today, um, to discuss this topic, we have on the show Dr. Dorothy Roberts, an acclaimed scholar of race, gender, and the law at UPenn, with joint appointments in the Departments of Africana Studies and Sociology and the Law School, where she holds the inaugural Raymond Pace and Sadie Tanner Mossel Alexander Chair. She is also the co-founder of the Penn Program on Race, Science, and Society in the Center of Africana Studies. Um, how are you doing today, Dr. Dorothy Roberts? I'm doing well. Thank you. It's good to be on this podcast. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you as well as Lisa Sangoy, who is the co-founder and co-director of Movement for Family Power. Lisa has a law degree, a master's degree in human rights studies and undergraduate degrees in math and philosophy. She has previously worked or interned at the NYU Law Family Defense Clinic, National Advocates for Pregnant Women, Women Prison Association, Incarcerated Mothers Law Project, and Brooklyn Defender Services Family Defense Practice, among other organizations. And so that was a lot. But I wanted to give you both an opportunity to share the pronouns that you use and maybe say a little more personally about who you are and your work, maybe starting with you, Dorothy. Okay, sure. So I use she, her, hers pronouns. And I have been working in the field of the family regulation system or family destruction system for a long time. My very first research and advocacy projects were challenging the prosecution of Black mothers who used drugs while pregnant back in the late 80s. I started teaching in 1988, and my very first project was on those prosecutions. And I, I wanted to look into why something that was a public health problem had been turned into a crime. And that got me interested in investigating the whole history of the punishment of Black women's childbearing and devaluation of Black mothers, because I saw these prosecutions as sending a message that these women should not be having children at all and realized that throughout U.S. history, there's been a devaluation of Black mothers, a, a disruption of our families, and even efforts to keep us from having children at all. Uh, that led to me writing a book called Killing the Black Body that's on the regulation of Black women's childbearing. But while I was doing that research, I found out that most of these mothers I was working with who had been arrested for drug use during pregnancy, also had encounters with the child welfare system. And in fact, there were many, many more removals of newborn babies from Black mothers for uh, prenatal drug use than there were prosecutions. And that's when I found out that there were these huge racial disparities. And in some cities at, like Chicago or New York or Newark. Uh, at the time, I was actually at uh, Rutgers Law School when I started doing this research in Newark. You know, in, in some cities, Black children make up most of the children taken from their homes and put in foster, what's called foster care. And so I started looking into why that was. Uh, and came to the conclusion that it's a racist institution that has affirmatively harmed children and their families, uh, doesn't address the structural causes for why many families are struggling in this country. And it's 
fueled by racist ideas about Black families and uh, these myths that Black parents don't care for their children, they don't have loving relationships, their children would be better off in other families and neighborhoods. And that led me to write my second book, Shattered Bonds, The Color of Child Welfare, uh, which was published now about 20 years ago. But ever since then, I've been working with different organizations and lawyers and parents' organizations to try to get out the word about how damaging this system is. And in conjunction with my growing awareness of abolitionist thinking uh, and abolitionist aims, uh, the way in which abolitionists think about not just dismantling these racist capitalist systems, but also imagining a different kind of world where people are actually supported and we meet human needs and solve social problems, not by threats and violence, like putting people in cages or taking their children away. We imagine a society that more humanely and equally and lovingly, you know, and caring in a caring way takes care of families and it gives gives families the supports that they need to be able to raise children. So that's how I got into this field and what I'm continuing to advocate around right now. Thank you so much for sharing that. And Lisa, I just also wanted to give you a chance to say a little bit more about yourself, um, your pronouns, and then as well as kind of the mission of Movement for Family Power. So I use she, her pronouns. Um, I just want to thank you, Khadija, so much for organizing and supporting and making space for these conversations and express how grateful I am to have the opportunity to um, be in conversation with you all today. In terms of um, what brings me to this area of injustice, um, I just sort of view it as my life's work and activism um, to you know, Dorothy said that since she wrote Shattered Bonds, she's been trying to get out the word. And I think uh, that's a big impetus for me that it is a very overlooked um, and normalized system of injustice, despite this um, system having some of the most violent powers, you know, a state can exercise against its people. Um, I will, you know, also say just from a deeply personal space, I think my my own relationship with my family and with my upbringing was completely transformed when I began to understand um, the sort of harm I incurred in my family, uh, not through the interpersonal sort of personal responsibility lens that the child welfare system imposes um, on us, but as I began to understand it through, a, my understanding was transformed and began to see it through more of a structural lens. And, um, you know, I think, I think really, uh, dismantling these systems and creating the space, um, for visionaries and dreamers and artists to really rebuild more compassionate and just systems is super important for all the reasons, um, that professor Roberts discussed, including, uh, the fact that I just don't think these systems make any space for true healing uh, amongst people who've been harmed. Thank you, Lisa. And one of the things that I'm really curious to hear about from both of you is that, you know, I'm, I've been happy to see that there's a burgeoning kind of movement around Black Families Matter. Um, a couple of years ago, there was the piece in the New York Times called The New Jane Crow, um, and another piece around that time in The New Yorker about when a child should be removed. At the same time, you know, I'm over the moon that to celebrate the 20, uh, 20th anniversary of Shattered Bonds that the Columbia Law School is having a conference about abolishing the child welfare system. But it's been 20 years since Shattered Bonds and so few people are, you know, it has child welfare hasn't captured the public imagination or become a public conversation in the way that we talk about the prison industrial complex or even other aspects of the carceral continuum, like people say the school to prison pipeline, however superficial these understandings are. 
Um, and I was just wondering if you could each speak to kind of what are the uh, the barriers in spreading the word? Um, I just, because I'm just baffled by how few people outside of those who are immediately impacted know about this in- vast violent system. Yeah, I, I everything you're saying is so true that so many people aren't aware, even though the system is huge. It's a multi-billion dollar government apparatus that has huge powers. You know, a, a caseworker can knock on the door and literally take your children away from you, armed with police, on their suspicion that your children might be at risk because of their own stereotypes about families. Uh, and so well, how could it possibly be that more people don't know about it and don't see all the harm that it commits and how racist it is? You know, when, when I first became aware of it, I have to say myself, I didn't know anything about it before I started doing research on drug the, the prosecutions of black women for drug use during pregnancy and then realized they were taking their kids away too. And when I looked at it, I was, I was shocked. I, th- I thought, how could it be that there isn't a massive movement because it's so obviously racist. There's no way that you could have a system in the United States that disproportionately so-called serves black families and it's better than what get, you know, white families get. That's just impossible, knowing how the U.S. is structured around white supremacy and racism. It's absurd to think that. It's absurd to think that foster care, you know, is a good service. Uh, We don't think that way. But yet, partly because it's so concentrated in Black and other marginalized neighborhoods, the general public doesn't see it. If you live in a segregated Black neighborhood in any city in the country, you are well aware of how aggressive and violent this system is. But in part because of racial segregation in the United States and the way in which these agencies can operate in those neighborhoods, a lot of the public doesn't see it. So that's that's one reason. That's one barrier. What I've called the racial geography of child welfare is one barrier. But the other is an ideological barrier, I think, which is that everybody knows that prisons aren't good places to be. You know, we know that we the U.S. sends people to prison to punish them. That's that's not disputed at all. There's a question of whether that's the way we should be addressing people's needs in America through caging people, but no one would say that caging someone is not a form of punishment, or you know, few people would say that. We recognize it's a violent system. In fact, many people like prisons because they're so violent. They think that people deserve to be there. But with the child welfare system, even the terms we use, child welfare, child protection, foster care, you know, we've got these words that are so benevolent and uh, good for people. And I think most people in this country think that it's actually protecting children from a greater harm. And even if they've read stories about how children who come out of foster care are at greater risk of, you know, of homelessness, of being incarcerated or going to juvenile detention, uh, less likely to graduate from high school. You know, we could go down the list, more likely to run away. You know, all these harms that people know about, they still have this idea, oh, but it's better still, though, than where they came from. And racism plays into that because a lot of people think, and I, I'm telling you, I've been to conferences where policymakers in this field will state this, that Black children are in bad neighborhoods and being raised by dysfunctional families. And so they're better off being taken from those families, regardless of what happens to them afterward. And and that's something I think that we have to disabuse people of this false idea that the system, even if it's got flaws, you know, is generally better for children. So what happens is 
you know, in the 20 years since I wrote Shattered Bonds. And at the time, there had been no other book written about racism or even very critical of this family regulation system since the 1970s. Um, and I, there was, and I don't want to say it was all because of my book, but at the, at the time, there started to be an interest in racial disparities in the system. So you saw this term racial disproportionality getting used a lot. And there were different task forces started, you know, in different agencies around the country. Um, I know I got to ask to speak to all sorts of groups about these racial disparities in the system. And what happens, though, is instead of really radically dismantling and transforming the whole approach to families' needs. There's this reform effort to uh, somehow improve the conditions of children in foster care or with the Adoption Safe Families Act, just the, the worst approach, which is, well, then we need to terminate the parental rights and get these children adopted so they're not languishing in foster care. So the the response often, because there wasn't an interest in really getting rid of the system altogether, or another way of saying it is there was such an investment you know, in this system, financial and otherwise, the response isn't, let's end it and figure out a better way, you know, a more, uh, to use Lisa's term, compassionate way, uh, a more equal way of, uh, and just more effective way of dealing with families' needs and problems. It's let's, we'll keep the basic structure and just tinker with it, which as abolitionists knows, just reinforces it even more. And so we have not seen very much change if any, at all, in the last 20 years. Um, thinking about what you just um, said, Dorothy, I think compassion is a, a really critical um, word to be using around this, but also that the foster care system, there's no way you can, once you know about it, that you can really believe that it is helping families. Um, there's this paradox where this violent child um, welfare system it articulates its punishment in this language of care, right? This idea that we're protecting Black babies, that's the narrative that's really um, often uh, uh, perpetuated, where Black mothers are unfit by default. But something that I find confusing about that is that we are protecting Black babies, but Black babies are also um, consistently deemed unworthy in society generally. And so, Lisa, I would love for you to um, um, think about this and how do we, as activists slash scholars, like how do we advocate for the abolition of child welfare systems that are seen as benevolent? Um, so I'll just touch on a couple of things quickly. Um, first, I just want to remark that um, it's true that while it's absolutely true that this injustice area isn't nearly as paid attention to as it should be, um, despite Professor Roberts having written her book almost 20 years ago now, I just... Um, just want to remark on how incredibly courageous and groundbreaking it was for Professor Roberts um, to, you know, cultivate that research and that knowledge base and really help people who uh, were undergoing these injustices and society at large begin to like have frameworks to really understand this injustice area and understand the uh, anti-black, racist, xenophobic, um, ableist, and other tendencies of the child welfare system. Um, it, which I'm mistakenly calling the child welfare system. So let me try to tr change my language to the family, family regulation system. So really just to shout out um, the courage um, and, and um, sort of uh, moment that that book was. Um, now, back to your question. Um, you know, I think one of the most stri striking uh, statistics, there's so, just so many striking statistics points about the child the family regulation system. And I will say one of the most striking ones is that um, one of the highest predictors of whether you as a parent and in particular a mother um, will have your kid taken away from you by the family regulation system is if you yourself uh, were under the surveillance um, and control of the system as a child. Um, and 
you know, if you think about this idea that one of the most violent and painful things you can do to someone is separate them from their child and that that system, the minute the child that's under their purview turns into an adult, turns around um, and does this awful thing to them, I think is very sort of illustrative of the enormous hypocrisy um, of the system. Um, yeah, I, I'll just stop there and let Dorothy or anyone else also respond. Well, so I want to give back the shout out to Movement for Family Power and other organizations that are working with parents or are parent-led to transform this family regulation system. Uh, this is something that has changed in the last 20 years. When I wrote Shattered Bonds, I was working with a small group of Black mothers in Chicago who met together to try to mostly give each other support as they were going through the violence of the system. And they had no resources. They had little influence over what was going on in DCFS in Chicago. And, and this is important too, an important aspect of how the system works. Their efforts to speak out against what was happening to them and their children were seen as defiance of the social workers they were working with and the judges uh, and, and others in the system. And so they're caught in a bind that by trying to point out the injustices, by trying to assert some self-determination, by, for example, wanting to have their own therapists and counselors, not the ones assigned by the city who were going to testify against them in court, uh, all of this was seen as non-compliance, as proof that they didn't really understand uh, their problem. I, I, I can remember being with one of the mothers when she was trying to point out the structural problem she was facing in trying to get her son back from foster care. And uh, I think it was a, a CASA worker, actually, not one of the caseworkers on the case, but uh, someone who was involved in kind of supervising her said, um, stop blaming. You have to stop blaming society for your problems. You're never going to get your son back if you don't face, you know, the, the, the problems you have as a parent, how he got put in foster care in the first place. And so she was castigated for having a structural view and trying to address her needs and her son's needs the way she knew best. So who's really uh, brave and inspiring, I think, are the parents who have had their kids taken away from them and have organized to make a change. And that's something that I've seen really expand in the last 20 years where there's more parent organizing uh, their voices are being heard more, not enough, but more. And there are organizations like Movement for Family Power that help to amplify, amplify the voices of uh, parents, especially Black mothers who are caught up in the system. You know, I, I, I'll, to, Dorothy, to your point about the um, CASA worker or caseworker saying to the mother, why are you blaming society for your problems? Um, you know, I think this goes back to this idea of the hypocrisy of the system, the system. This is, you know, a governmental system that claims to protect children and in particular be protecting black children. Um, when in fact it does everything to ensure children and in particular black children are not healthy or not thriving and works, you know, with every other oppressive system in this country to do that. Um, and, you know, I think this really goes to the heart of why this system really even exists. It, at a point in time, it became, for the economic and racial order to exist as it does in this country, it became really important to entrench the idea 
that these intra- these social problems, centuries of racism, um, centuries of allowing capital to build amongst the wealthy and elites, um, and just c- completely ignoring the needs of working people, right? It became necessary to pretend like all the problems that resulted from that were, in fact, individual issues, right? Um, and that we as individuals were responsible for our, the, all the harm that resulted. And so the child welfare system is particularly good at taking what are systemic and structural harms uh, and the sort of converting them into parental responsibility and often responsibility of mamas. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, Professor Roberts, I 100% agree that one of the reasons this, this injustice area has thrived is because it served such a critical purpose in the sort of neoliberal project and also that it thrives in, you know, as Elizabeth Brico, a parent impacted who does incredibly courageous writing and journalism on the child welfare system says it thrives in darkness. Um, and so it sort of convinced everyone that it's out to do good. It keeps its courts closed so that people don't know what's actually happening it creates a huge deep stigma around what it means to have been labeled a child abuser and neglector. So people, you know, do feel scared and they face legitimate retaliation. They face sanctions, including the loss of your child and, you know, caging for speaking out. Um, uh, nonetheless, people are speaking out and are speaking out courageously. And, um, one of the things that I have really appreciated about my time at Movement for Family Power is I've had the time and space to really try to f- look around the country and see what's going on. And it is just remarkable and inspiring, um, the, the, the advocacy, the organizing, the writing, the agitating, and... Um, healing that parent spaces that parents are creating for each other, either through online communities. Um, so one that comes to mind is stop CPS from legally kidnapping my children, um, you know, through um, participatory defense programs, for example, in Riverside, Bobby Butts and Vanya Quarles run a participatory defense program called um, family reunification, equity, empowerment, um, uh, parents impacted in Minnesota fighting for, legislation to fight the really gross uh, anti-Black racism in Minnesota's child welfare system. Of course, you have the stellar, really active parents in New York City um, through the Parent Legislative Action Network who are successfully fighting for legal reform. Um, There are so many names that I'm sort of missing right now, but just to bring those names in this space and, and really appreciate their courageous work because people legitimately face loss of their children, intrusion into their family um, and criminal sanctions for doing this work. Thank you for both of you for your comments. Um, I have so many questions um, and I just wanted to just echo, yes, um, you know, Shattered Bonds had a huge impact on me when I became personally involved in the child welfare system, when I learned about Movement for Family Power, Joyce McMillan, to find out there was a community was so important because I understand, given the racial geography of how this family regulation system operates, I'm not surprised how many white or and or middle class people don't know. But I feel like for a lot of my peers have been targeted by the by the family regulation system. There's such a sense of shame. And so the fact that there is a community calling out the structural racism feels so important so that people can understand that it's not just happening to them. And it's not because there's something wrong with their family that multiple generations have become involved with the child welfare system. And a question I had, and I wanted to first give this example, Lisa, I know I sent this article to you, but something that had a major impact that always stayed with me was a story about Chanel Nadal and Nefra Payne who had eight children who were um, placed into foster care. And when they heard that the kids were going up for adoption and that the kids were complaining that they had been, some of them had been sexually assaulted and physically assaulted in their foster homes, they, during a visit, so-called kidnapped their own eight children and ran away with them. Um, And unfortunately, they were identified and brought back into care 
um, about eight or nine days later. But this always really stayed with me, the story. And actually, I've been looking for Chanel for a long time. And I was able to connect with her about a month and a half ago. And hopefully she's going to be on the show soon. But it just, me and Joyce were talking about, and we were like, this is the Harriet Tubman of foster care. And what was crazy to me in that moment is that you have all this uh, move for amnesty policies around undocumented people in the United States, even while like our overall immigration policy is clearly wrong. Um, but why is there not the same move to provide that set of protections um, for people whose children are removed into the foster care system? And maybe the question is, why isn't there not? But what there, I do feel a sense of impatience that even though the foster care census has really been drastically reduced in New York City, that there's still around 8,000 children who have been removed from their families, not to mention all the people who are just traumatized from being investigated and strip searched. And so I'm wondering... What are some of the specific things that you would like to see happen kind of in the near future to push forward this movement to uh, materially start abolishing the system and create radical alternatives? Well, I think that any strategy and vision around abolition, whether we're talking about prisons, police, the family regulation system has to simultaneously have a long-term vision of the kind of society we want to create where there's no need for policing, there's no need for caging people, there's no need for removing children from their homes, where that would seem ridiculous and unthinkable to deal with families' needs and problems by using violence uh, of removing children and putting them into a harmful system. That, it is absurd, you know, that makes no sense, but we have a society where it would be obvious to everybody that that makes no sense and we wouldn't do it. At the same time, we wanna be working right now toward reducing the numbers of children who are involved in the system and families that are caught up in it. We wanna be working right now to create other ways of caring for families and supporting families right now. Uh, as we create a society that has a completely different way of valuing families. And of course that's going to involve radical changes in how the resources in our nation are distributed and an end to white supremacy and racial capitalism and uh, uh, and and racism, structural racism. So how do we do both of them, I think, is the question. And I found it very useful to look to some of the ways that prison abolitionists have thought about this. One is the concept of non-reformist reforms. So we do want to engage in changes that we can implement now or soon that might be called reforms because they're not the ultimate new society that we're building, but they should be changes that move toward that. They shouldn't be changes that either build up the system we have now or that create seeming alternatives that are also still policing families. And I've, I made this point recently in an article or, well, it was just an essay really in the Chronicle for Social Change that people who are calling to defund the police shouldn't be saying, well, take the money from the police and invest it in child protective services because they're both poli the police. You know, They're both policing agencies that are violent and that destroy families. So uh, on the reverse, I think we should be thinking about other kinds of ways of policing families that might be seen as alternatives to foster care, but they really aren't. Uh, and so we don't want money to go into monitoring systems, systems that look like they're providing 
care and resources, but what they're really doing is collecting data on families so that they are now suspects who at any moment could have their children taken away from them. And so, for example, uh, there's this idea that, well, the solution to foster care is to have a two-tiered system where you look to the police or maybe you continue to look to child welfare agencies to remove children who are the most at risk or who have suffered the most uh, harm from their families. And then you have another category of less risky families that you don't really apply you know, the most severe forms of policing to and punishment to. But what that does is then say, oh, well, we can then expand you know, the less risky net to even more families because we're not really treating them that harshly. We're just really caring for them. But as long as they're in this same child welfare system and being monitored by them, at any moment, they could be put into the category of very risky and have their kids taken away from them. So this is a, a good way, I don't think, to reform the system. It expands the system's reach and it gives even more power to the system to take children away and in other ways, police families. So that's one thing we have to be careful of. I mean, that's sort of like an overall principle. Uh, but some of the concrete things that we can do is try to figure out ways to divert resources that are being defunded, you know, from policing agencies toward community efforts like mutual aid efforts and other initiatives that are started by and controlled by community members in order to meet families' needs and deal with conflicts, including harms created in families. Uh, another is mandatory reporting. People get all aghast if you say we should abolish mandatory reporting, but mandatory reporting is harmful. It, it, it punishes the very people who seek out help because they probably have to go, especially if they don't have a lot of money and resources, they have to go to mandatory reporters to try to get help. And they are at risk then of having their children taken from them because they sought needed help to help them raise their children. Uh, whether we're talking about medical care or help with uh, education or just material needs, help with food or housing. So mandatory reporters can deter people from seeking the help they need in order to take care of their children. Uh, and it, it, it forces people who don't want to be agents of the state into being sort of deputized police for the, the, the family regulation system in ways that they can see are harmful, but they have to, they're mandated by law and they risk their own liability if they don't do it. So I, I think looking into and explaining the harms of mandatory reporting and uh, eventually, I don't know how long it will take, but eventually getting rid of it is a concrete step we can take. Um, another is representation for parents in in these child welfare proceedings. I don't think that representation by itself will solve the problem because it's representation within a system that is based on carceral logics and based on punishment and that ignores the, the structural reasons for families' needs. But it is one step that will bring us toward empowering people who get involved in the system and it's only just because on the other side, you have a whole army of lawyers who, and other professionals who are there to justify taking children away from parents. You know, um, speaking of non-reformist reforms, um, New York City undertook uh, 
a very large experiment with the non-reformance and reform starting in the early 2000s, putting a ton of money um, into quote unquote services, um, which may be more appropriately sort of understood as social programming um, for families. So services for families um, and diverting families uh, away from family separation, but into sort of this service program where families are very closely monitored, forced to attend service, um, different quote unquote service providers all over the New York City that sort of um, claim to teach them how to be better parents and how to manage their anger and how to be in relationships, all really sort of paternalistic, denigrating sort of things. Um, and, you know, Khadija, as I've heard you talk about, what this resulted in is while the number of children removed from their homes into the foster system decreased, there was a corresponding pretty much exact increase in the number of kids that were funneled into these monitoring programs and these surveillance programs, which are by and large experienced is very paternalistic, very stressful, very demeaning, and not, not very helpful by families. Um, and so uh, movement for family power just, um, worked with a lot of people and organizations to um, publish a research report. Uh, and part of the research report chronicles the experience of a mother who, um, a mother in the Bronx, New York City, who um, whose baby tested positive for controlled substances at birth. Um, and in most counties in America, given the substance, um, the, there would have been family separation just per se at the positive test, the hospital personnel would have immediately taken the baby away, called CPS and CPS would have, um, done an emergency removal. The judge would have rubber stamped it without even looking at whether there was an actual risk of harm in New York city, because of the incredible money put into these quote unquote services, this new mother had access to residential drug treatment. And so was able to come to an agreement. Uh, this was before even having any court involvement, but was able to come to an agreement with the CPS agency, Administration for Children's Services, ACS, that she'll enroll in this residential drug treatment program. And she did with her baby. Um, thank goodness she was able to you know, stay with her baby girl. Um, I just can't even imagine not being able to do that. Um, so you know, that was that was good. Uh, but her experience in that residential drug treatment program, as chronicled uh, by her to us um, and published in this report, was just really harrowing. Um, it was really dirty. They made her sign over her benefits to the program and then wouldn't really let her draw them down. She was forced to eat rotten food. She wasn't permitted to co-sleep with or nurse her baby, um, you know, was... Um, not graduate, quote unquote, graduated through levels of this drug treatment program for all these non-drug use related, quote unquote, infractions, like talking on a cell phone and trying to get in touch with an attorney because she hadn't even seen a court or talked to an attorney before being forced into this program. Um, and this residential treatment program, by the way, is, um, if you go to their website, you know, they claim to uphold the principles of harm reduction and be evidence-based and uh, trauma-informed and um, client-centered and all these things. And so uh, I think this is, I just sort of uh, share this to sort of uh, give an ex uh, a sort of example, a recent example from some of the work that we've been doing on how these non-reformist reforms can play out on the ground. And I think, you know, it's really critical for um, not just governments and CPS agencies, but the philanthropies, like the Casey Foundations of the world, who throw so much money into these non-reformist reforms, uh, and then just continue to per perpetuate and perpetrate the very same uh, racism um, and classism and ableism and misogyny against families, to you know have some sense of what they're doing. Lisa, thank you so much for that. And I was just cracking up to myself uh, thinking about New York City, because New York City, I mean, having the most segregated public school district in the country at this point, people will move their whole location in order to get access to the so-called best and most specialized public school. 
And if child welfare systems were actually providing some really incredible benevolent programming, I mean, they would be forcing black people out. People would be hiring like private tutors to make it into the services. Um, so it's just like, you know, hilarious in a tragic way to think that they're able to brand and market themselves as this benevolent set of services. Um, just being mindful of time. There's so many things that I wanted to cover, but given that a huge section of our listeners are thinking about data policy and tech, I wanted to segue a little bit into thinking about the implications of predictive analytics in the child welfare system. Um, and I wanted to highlight a particular passage of you know, the canonical entry point for people in data policy into thinking about the child welfare system is through Virginia Eubanks' Automating Inequality, where child welfare is one of the case, one of the three case studies that she looks at to see the impact of automated decision-making systems being adopted in the public sector. And so, you know, I really appreciated, Dorothy, your um, digitizing the carceral state, the book review that you had. And I just wanted to highlight, let me pull it up here as I'm a little disorganized. Um, one particular passage where it says, despite claims that computerized prediction is objective, as databases and algorithms build in unequal social structures and ideologies that create new modes of state surveillance and control in marginalized communities. And why I wanted to highlight that is that, um, you know, for example, there's this piece evoking the 13th Amendment to reform child welfare by Kurt Mundorf um, in the early 2000s. And, you know, kind of highlighting this very clear like antebellum parallel where you're going in, you're strip searching kids, you're removing them from their families, and it's just like the auction block. Um, and it's you kind of need like a constitutional challenge to these family regulation systems. Um, but on the flip side, there is this 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 implementation of predictive analytics in the child welfare system. And I was wondering if you could each talk a little bit about what are the ways in which there's something new to be understood here. Um, at, you know, relative to the fact that the entire system is informed by white supremacy and, you know, se se uh, severing the bonds of families. Yeah, I think a theme that's run through everything we've been talking about is that the fundamental principles and values and ideology underlying the U.S. family destruction system are unjust. And so, when you try to just tinker with that and come up with reforms and take money from one aspect of it and put it into another, like residential drug treatment, instead of taking babies away, it's still going to be set up in a way that's punitive and policing and that's harmful. So if you use predictive analytics to assess the risk of you know, to children and who should be put into the system, you're still basing it on at the idea that the way in which we should address families' needs and problems is to take children away. So it doesn't, all the predictive analytics do is give you a so-called more accurate way of doing harmful things. Until you abolish the system itself, and that's the conclusion I came to at the end of that article you mentioned, Changing the algorithm isn't going to help if the point of the algorithm is to help the government figure out whose children to take away. So that's the overall problem. The other problem is these predictive analytics use data and variables that are based on racism. So if they're using, for example, a database to determine whose kids should be removed, and the whole database is made up of people who get some kind of public assistance, you're already using a system that's racist and ableist and classist and capitalist because you're only including people who have been disadvantaged already by the U.S. system of racial capitalism. So that that's one way in which it seeps in. Who, what's the database to begin with? Who's already assumed not to be included in the families whose kids can be taken away and who's assumed to already be at risk just because of their race or their class or their gender or their, uh, their abilities? And then there are other ways in which it comes in, in terms of the variables they're going to use, because what is 
the variable that tells you that a child is at risk of maltreatment. If you use variables like caseworkers already use, you know, is it, what is the income level of the family? Uh, are they relying on public benefits? And here's another one that they already use. Is a member of the family, does a, does a member of the family have a criminal record? Well, if that's a sign of possible risk and that's put into the algorithm, you are going to perpetuate the racism of our criminal justice system that already racially profiles and targets Black communities for arrest and incarceration. Not to mention the whole idea that the way in which you address the needs of communities is to arrest and cage people. So all of those aspects of predictive analytics makes it an area we really have to scrutinize and is not going to be helpful as long as it's in the hands of government authorities that think that taking children and destroying families and policing families is the best way to deal with so-called child welfare. That's what we have to be concerned about. If we want to use predictive analytics in a, you know, a, a liberatory way, it would have to be controlled by the communities that are now being policed by the government. And its purpose would have to be to identify injustice and, and end it. It, it can't be the same goal that the government has right now to police and punish. Lisa, Lisa did you want to res- respond to that? Um, I, I just, I, I just completely, completely agree. And you know, I, one joke I often make is it's, and this is really just a joke. I'm not proposing this, but it's remarkable that the. The government will never actually use predictive analytics against itself to restrain, <laughs> restrain governmental mm-hmm. power and really figure out, okay, which jurisdiction is going to ignore its lead water problem and poison children, you know, and let's intervene there. Which jurisdiction is going to, um, 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 you know, have an increase in uh, killings by police officers of um of black people and then, you know, go there and defund and, and decrease the police force, right? That will, that will never happen. They use it against us. Yes. Lisa, that is exactly, you put uh, in a very vivid way, what exactly what I was saying. It, it's who controls these analytics and what are they using it for that, that matters? The tool itself is, you know, it, it doesn't have a politics. It's, is it being used to end injustice or is it being used to perpetuate injustice? That's, that's the question. Um, so we're almost at the hour mark. So I just wanted to share with you, I had asked um, some families who had been previously had contact with um, ACS, the New York City Administration of Children's Services, to share some questions for you guys. So I'm just going to share both of them, and then maybe we can try to have brief answers and then go to our recommendation portion. Um, so the first is by um, Angeline Matobin, who came on the Mother's Day episode. And she says, there is a lack of accountability in the foster care industry. Parents are not given the opportunity to complete a formal evaluation or a survey to report on their services and experiences. Agencies are not effectively monitored by the city and the state. There's not a framework for effectiveness. Nobody is talking about holding foster care agencies accountable, even though their budget is as large as a school building. Presidents of foster care agencies have an average salary of half a million dollars, yet there are no measures to rate them and evaluate and document what is and what is not working. Um, We believe in closing failing schools and the firing of ineffective principals. What do you think needs to happen so we can bring the same level of transparency and accountability to the foster care system, um, which connects to some of the comments that both of you made? And then second, I just wanted to share a question from the Voices of Women organization. It says, I would like to know their perspectives, opinions on rethinking or reimagining child welfare when it intersects with victim services like domestic or gender-based violence. What are the emerging ideas, responses being discussed? Um, and so I know that these are both huge questions, but we're almost at an hour. Um, so if you would like to share anything in response to that, maybe Lisa, this time we could start with you. 
sure. Um, you know, just to shout out quickly, Angeline Montabon and um, her her social media feed is an amazing source of political education um, that I believe is open to the public. So folks should follow that. Um, uh, and she's just a very powerful activist uh, and mother in New York City. Um, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, agency these foster care agencies, I mean, they've been around, some of them have been around doing this, excuse my language, fuckery since the mid 1800s, paying their, their heads, you know, half a million dollars, as she says, you know, with such little accountability. And to the extent that there is accountability, right? um, It's like, it's metrics that they invent. So they, they say, we reduce child maltreatment, and then they define what child maltreatment is. And then they use brute force to then quote unquote, reduce it. So um, yeah, complete, complete lack of transparency and accountability. But I will say, you know, back to one of your earlier questions around immigration, um, the movement for, um, uh, for opening the borders, um, being sort of further along than us, you know, I think those of us, and there are many of us who are fighting to uh, decrease the harms and eventually abolish the, the family regulation system, you know, there so many of us have been doing the work for so long. Uh, mothers have been doing this, parents have been doing this work for decades. But the movement, movement itself, right? The cohesion, the cohesion amongst the people and organizations doing the work, um, that is still building and new. And I think there will be a day when we get to a place when um, we are um, holding these people who operate in darkness um, seriously accountable. And I think the work that we're doing is just building towards that um, every day. Um, and then to the other question around um, intimate partner violence, you know, I think I think Professor Roberts answered it. There's just such a huge body of research in addition, in addition to just so many people's telling their personal experiences around the fact that mandatory reporting has completely blocked folks ability to seek out help when experiencing intimate partner violence. And so, you know, the flip side of that is needing to abolish the very punitive systems um, that punish um, survivors of intimate partner violence and uh, very harshly um, and unforgivingly um, punish and instead of holding accountable uh, the perpetrators of that violence who are often people that are loved, right, by people who are surviving the violence. And so really completely rethinking um, how we as a society respond to uh, gender-based violence and intimate partner violence, which, you know, groups such as um, Insight um, and Critical Resistance, um, uh, Bay Area Transformative Justice, so many groups have been doing um, for so long. And I think transformharm.org is a really great website that collects a lot of those resources together. Yeah, I, I would, do you want me to add, I don't have to, but I could add something if yeah, you want. Yeah, please, <laughs> add before, of course, go ahead. Uh, okay, so I, I would just add uh, in terms of addressing uh, intimate partner violence or family violence, violence by adults against children and families, uh, that we know that punitive responses like prisons and police don't work to end violence at all. And in fact, it's often the survivors of violence who are punished, uh, including sometimes being beaten up and killed even by police and having their children taken away from them. So it doesn't stop the violence and it may actually cause greater harm to the very people who are the survivors of violence. So we, we have to stop relying on law enforcement and other punitive means, you know, calling the child abuse hotline uh, as ways of addressing it. And this is something, as Lisa said, that a number of collectives and organizations and community based efforts have been, and just small groups of people have been working on, you know, uh, 
non or anti-carceral Black feminists, for example, this has been an aspect of abolitionist work for a long time. Angela Davis has been very outspoken about this in her abolitionist work. And that's what we have to support and and build up and divert resources to our community-based ways of addressing violence that make the perpetrators of violence accountable without calling agents of the state to lock them up or take their children away from them. I'll just add a couple more uh, organizations to the ones that Lisa mentioned. Uh, Project NIA that was founded by Mariam Kaba and also uh, all the work that Mariam does on this issue is really insightful and you can look it up on uh, Project NIA's website and also Survived and Punished is another organization that is working on ways of addressing violence without punishing the people who are suffering from violence. Yeah, big, big shout out to Mariam Kaba and I encourage folks to follow her on Twitter, Prison Culture. Yeah, thank you both so much for your responses to that. Um, in the tradition of We Be Imagining, we uh, normally end our episodes with recommendations on something that you're reading, uh, listening to, watching, inspired by, and it can be related to the topic at hand or it can be completely unrelated. And so we'd just love to see what y'all have been using to get through this time. So maybe if Lisa can go first. Sure. So um, I, I joined Spotify, uh, which is a music subscription service that has a lot of music on it from all over the world. Um, and I find um, that the days in the midst of the pandemic can kind of have a little bit of a ring of monotony to them. And so I really enjoyed going on to Spotify and listening to um, music. And in particular, I listened to Morning Ragas, R-A-G-A-S. It's a type of uh, music from the South Asian um, subcontinent. So yeah, I encourage folks to check it out. And I actually don't even think you have to pay to be go to Spotify. They have a free trial too. Oh, Dorothy, oh. would you like to go next? Okay. Well, there was a book that kept coming to mind as we were uh, engaging in our conversation, that, a book that's just about to be published, Prison by Any Other Name, by activist journalists Maya Shenwar and Victoria Law. And it's about how these kinder, gentler types of reforms can actually be just as harmful and as uh, policing as what they're supposed to be reforming. And I think it gives a lot of insight into what we were saying about ways in which some cities and states are proposing alternatives to foster care that also involve punishing and policing people. Thank you. I was going to share. Um, so Shattered Bonds is definitely the the seminal work on child welfare. Another book that I discovered um, later on was uh, Catching a Case. And yeah, that focuses on the New York City uh, child welfare system um, by Tina Lee, who I think used to be at CUNY grad, but now is in like Wisconsin or something. Um, but that book was also really incredible, just in kind of validating and mirroring um, what was my experience at the time. Stanley, you know, it's funny. Yeah. Every week, Stanley, Stanley always suggests Dorothy Roberts. <laughs> he's always reading a book on Europe. I'm like curious what he's going to come up with today. <laughs> no, that's not Thank you, Stanley. <laughs> no, absolutely. No, I've been reading you for several years, or many years, actually. And I love all of your work. Um, and I'm so happy that I was also able to hear you speak, Lisa, because reading some of your articles and seeing the work that you do is also so inspiring. And so it's just, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, and Lisa and I 
Galisa and I co-authored an article also. Oh, yes. Isn't it called Black Families Matter? Isn't it something like that, Lisa? I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. Um, But personally, so I... um, A book I just finished reading was actually 12 Years a Slave. Um, Mm. A lot of... uh, I find that it's really easy to um, like delve into academic texts, but it's also so important to get just anecdotal experiences. I think mm-hmm. um, even thinking about child welfare, right? You need to listen to the mothers. You need to hear those yes. experiences in order to put that theory into context. Um, mm-hmm. And so 12 Years a Slave was just an amazing text. And seeing that story, it is so easy to create parallels with a lot of the systems that we deal with today. Um, and, uh, that's what I'm reading, but, um, what I've been listening to actually, um, we love Spotify as well. Um, uh, so a few weeks ago I mentioned, uh, Afrobeats as being a, um, a musical genre that I've been really attuned to, but, um, mainly new age Afrobeats. And so over the past few weeks, I decided to, uh, take it back a step and listen to Fela Kuti. Um, which is one of the the original Afrobeats artists. And his work is just, it's so incredible. And there's a there's such a, a difference and a, there's such a vibrance in his music. You could feel um, the life in every instrument that's being played in his band. And every time he sings, you it, it, there's, there's a, a spirit in it that I think is so important to experience, especially as we're all stuck at home and dealing with that monotony of um, this quarantine. It's, um, I found it really um, incredible and necessary. It's also music of the revolution. That too. The, absolutely. Very timely. Yeah, we need a soundtrack to the revolution while we're all isolated <laughs> into our little, our little houses and devillaged. Absolutely. Um, but that's it. Thank you so much, Dorothy, Lisa, Stanley, for coming on the show to talk about abolishing the family regulation system. Uh, next week, we're going to have Romy Morrison and Trevor Ellison talking about Black computational thought. Um, keep it locked to We Be Imagining Podcast. We're available on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, where all major platforms where podcasts are found. Um, please like us, rate us, subscribe us, all of those things, and write us at webeimagining at gmail.com. As we be imagining at gmail.com. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. This was great. I really enjoyed talking with all of you. Thank you. <laughs>